How often do the two of you encounter an independent filmmaker who's intimidated by attorneys? Maybe they have, uh, you know, fears. Maybe they feel they're going to be taken advantage of. They don't understand the process. And what do you do to alleviate those fears? Yeah, I, it happens a lot. Um, and I think the major fear is cost. You know, oh, we can't hire, we can't talk to an attorney because we don't have the money to pay for one. Um, and that's such a misconception because typically it's much less expensive if somebody comes to us early on in the project rather than later and asks us to fix things. Because once they're in a position where they really need an attorney, that's when it's gonna cost a lot more money. So um, I, we're constantly alleviating people's fears that you know it's okay and if you can't afford us, it's okay, you don't have to retain us. And we have this wonderful book that is a resource. Um, I actually was just talking to someone today who had who basically asked me in about 30 seconds, how do I make a movie? But he had a lot of questions in there. And I said, you know what, you should really get this book. I said, this is the book that's going to tell you basically what you need to know to make a movie and give you the resources that you need to get it done in terms of contracts and agreements that you, that you will need when you're producing a film. Um, in fact, one of the things about this fourth edition is that every contract in here that is discussed with all the hints and the background and the what to do if they disagree has after it a an address where you can just type in and download a clean copy of the contract so you can change it so and we tell you how to use them it's uh, it's very user friendly and it is designed for filmmakers who may not be ready financially to hire a lawyer this this book will get them started. Okay, well let's talk about <laughs> what are some of the things that may happen if, first off, let's suppose they are scared of the cost, but the alternatives in on the back end could be a lot more uh, costly. What are some of those scenarios if they did not have their ducks in a row, let's suppose when they, the movie's ready, it's ready to go to theaters, they've got a distributor. They vary, but I would say probably the most common one is not having signed agreements with people, um, which results in those people having a valid copyright claim over elements of the film. So, so many films are done, you know, kind of on a, I don't know what, try, what term to use. Hold hands and walk into the sunset <laughs> is what I say. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and, and also people are just working for a day. Do I really need someone to sign an agreement if they're just working for a day? But what happens is anybody who holds a camera, anybody who has any sort of arguably creative contribution to the film, owns the copyright to that contribution unless there's a, ri a writing that says otherwise. That's where we get that work for hire language. When something's a work for hire, that means the person who's hiring them actually owns a copyright. And if you don't have that, you can have pieces of copyright floating all over the place with all these different cameramen that you've used, for, as an example or the prop person or the costume person. All these people are making contributions which are copyrightable, certainly if you build a prop, if you design a costume. So you really need to get little, little deal memos. There's a form in the book, but you have to get, you have to every, get everybody to sign on. Otherwise, the producer, who's paid for everything and thought he or she owned the copyright, may only own a piece of the copyright. And that can get to be very, very, very problematical. Get the written agreements before you let people do work on the film. Yeah, 
And just tacking on to that, you know, the real issue becomes delivery. So, so many producers don't understand what delivery is or even know what that word is. And that means, you know, when you have a film, you have to actually, if it gets sold, you actually have to deliver it to somebody. And not only the film, but all the paperwork attendant to the film. Because whoever's buying it wants to know that you own all the copyright, the chain of title is clear, all of these things that we describe in the book and we talk about in the book. But um, it's, it's interesting how people don't understand that. And once they go to deliver, then they have to backtrack. And they're like, oh, my God, I haven't talked to that person in three years. I've never been able to find them. And they have to do that. And so it just becomes a lot harder trying to do things after the fact than doing things as you go along. I think just as in anything else in life, <laughs> same thing. <laughs> so let's say I'm doing a little indie short. I'm paying for it out of my own pocket. I'm the writer, director, producer. I've hired a gentleman or woman off of Craigslist to be my camera person. And I found some actors. I wouldn't need to worry about it, right? And you're doing it at my house. I'd be fine, correct? No. No? No. Get them Wrong. to sign. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you're, but that is exactly the way people think about small films and, and, and even worse, all our friends are getting together on Saturday and we're going to make a short. Typically, no, nothing's signed. Hire somebody off Craigslist, typically you would. But it's amazing how many people don't think a wit about these things and then they sell the film and it's a nightmare and expensive. It's so easy to get the proper releases at the time but to go back later it's difficult and, and sometimes um, triggers a feeling that perhaps they should receive some money, a feeling that they wouldn't have on Saturday when we're all holding hands and singing Kumbaya. Well, forgive me for asking this question, but how often do the two of you take a case that's maybe a little bit too, dare I say, intimidating or maybe too controversial? Daily. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're asking the wrong folks because it, it, those are like, oh, great. What a <laughs> Example, uh, two years ago, The Talk of Sundance was a film, little black and white film, horror film that was shot surreptitiously at Disney World. It was every, a talk of, talk of Sundance. Every publication that said anything about the film said, isn't it too bad it won't be released? Oh, it can't be released. There are hundreds of people in the background, copyright material, trademarks, logos. They'll never get it released. So where did the film land up? In our office, we worked with the filmmaker. A couple little tweaks and it got released, got insured. That's what we love to do. Yeah. Yeah, we kind of, I think we kind of thrive <coughs> off those controversial, not necessarily controversial, but I think it's more um, where people have a preconceived idea of what the law is. And so much of that is based on policy created by studios that doesn't necessarily apply to independent filmmakers. And so a lot of, a lot of issues that filmmakers think are really difficult, I mean, a, a very, um, tangible example is people wearing t-shirts with a logo on it or a hat. How many times do I get the question of can we use that or I have to blur this logo out? Absolutely not. You don't have to blur that logo out. You know, you may want to because maybe you want that brand to give you money for product placement, but legally you have every right to use that trademark 
in the manner in which it's intended. And you're even looking at me like, really? <laughs> like, <laughs> Interesting. So there's so many issues like that. So I don't want controversial, I don't think is the right word, but it's more just taking these principles that people believe are true and dispelling them of that. Interesting. Yeah, we, we often talk about the worst sensor in the world, which are the scissors in your mind. Okay. <laughs> Just thinking People something have else, these yeah. ideas that they can't, they shouldn't. They'll get in trouble if they do. And we work with them so that they can be insured, which covers the issue of what happens if somebody comes after us. And, and uh, film after film after film that are really difficult. Um, I don't know if your camera's picking it up, but right behind us is a poster for room 237. A third of that film was comprised of clips from The Shining in a film that the Kubrick estate would hate. And they did. And they call. And we deal with them. But we have insurance in place, and all we ever did was uh, organize a nice disclaimer at the front, which was perfectly satisfactory to the filmmaker. In fact, worked in the filmmaker's favor, actually. That was on the screen for a long time and made the audience laugh and, and also set up the fact that, you know, this, this is how these professors deconstruct The Shining, not the way the Kubricks deconstruct The Shining. Many, gosh, we have so many examples. Yeah, there's a lot like that. And they are they're, they're exciting for us because we feel that we open the door to filmmakers that they didn't know could it be opened at all, you know. And when we get that satisfaction from a client, it's so satisfying satisfying for us, you know, to get that and to for a client to go, wow, thank you. I could have never made this movie without you. And I don't think a lot of lawyers get that yeah, in it's, exchange. It's, and it's we're, very We're nice. blessed. We're yeah. blessed. The first line on our website is helping artists tell their story their way. And that's what we're all about. So when somebody comes in, as you say with this, it's scary to maybe other lawyers, maybe right. scary to them, we just wring our hands and say, oh, let us jump into this. Um, we had a, we had a, a great one. Um, uh, last can, the talk of the, of the festival was a film called Welcome to New York. It was a biopic about Dominic Strauss-Kahn and his predilection for New York hotel maids, told from the hotel maid's point of view. We couldn't talk to her because she'd signed a confidentiality agreement. Certainly, Dominic Strauss-Kahn wasn't going to talk to us, and his wife, uh, depicted by Jacqueline Bessette, uh, Dominic Strauss-Kahn was played by... Uh, Gerard Depardieu. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, you know, it, people thought this would never get released. It not only got released, it was shown at the Cannes Film Festival. Everybody was talking about it. And uh, we actually, in that case, did not get any phone calls. In spite of scenes that were, were made up between Mr. and Mrs. Khan, we worked with the filmmaker on how to do that so that it would be insurable. That's always the key for us. Can we get the me and O insurance? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that where this safe harbor clause, or I, maybe I'm, you know, distorting the the meaning of it? But is that where this all comes into play? Well, that comes into play on copyright infringement questions. Ah, okay. With the Dominic Strauss-Kahn example, those are personal rights, right. okay. very different area of the law. Uh, and in uh, 
Escape from Tomorrow, the black and white horror film shot surreptitiously at Disney World, you had personal rights of all the people in the background. You, you had a lot of fair use, fair use issues with trademark and copyrights that were present in the film. So we, yeah, it all, that one had everything. It had everything, yes. right. It was the full basket <laughs> of it. Exactly. Talk about fair use and how can fair use uh, help save a filmmaker, let's just throw out a number, six figures, 100,000 um, or more in expenses on their film? And what is fair use? Go ahead. Um, well, let's start off with the question, <laughs> what is fair use first? Which I think can um, succinctly be, an be answered with the explanation that it's really a person's right to use a limited amount of copyrighted material without permission from the copyright holder. And, and that word limited, I think, is really key. And it also needs to be used for the purpose of comment or criticism. So documentary films lend themselves to fair use. I think in every instance, you know, you're doing a historical documentary about anything, you're going to want to show clips or stills or something that represents what you're talking about. Um, so that's really what fair use is in a very sh quick nutshell. Um, and then in terms of saving clients money, you know, that's not the purpose of fair use, but it's certainly a nice benefit. But in terms of when you're using fair use, you don't have to license from, from the copyright holder. So that in and of itself means you're going to be saving some money. Um, people often come to us and they say, oh, we can't afford you, we can't afford you, but we have a $100,000 budget for licensing clips. And it's like, well, let's rethink that a little <laughs> bit. It's like, well, you know, you come to us, our, our fee is not nearly that much, um, and you can use things under your, under your right to use materials under fair use. Although we, we can give you, before you leave, uh, an article from the New York Times that showed, uh, talked about a film where we say 400,000. So it just, it, it is an unintended consequence. The purpose of the Copyright Act, which many people don't realize, is to encourage new works. So the creation of new works is, a, is, a, is why we have copyright law. And if it helps the creation of new works to, to use a little bits of other people's stuff, that is in furtherance of the copyright law, not in opposition to the copyright law. So does, let's say, five minutes of a clip <coughs> constitute copyright infringement versus one minute, oh, that's under the fair use time limit, or am I? It has nothing, nothing to do with that. Nothing, because okay. well, the, the, the key is when a documentary is, are you using it legitimately to illustrate some point you're already making? And do you use what's reasonably appropriate? And sometimes that's a short bit, and then it's, it's whatever it takes to, but no more than what it takes, to illustrate what you're trying to illustrate. And then is the connection clear? Right. So it isn't a matter of seconds. Uh, you take a photograph, it's gonna be 100%. You take a film, it's gonna, it is gonna be a small percentage, but you can't put just a percentage or a fixed number and say that's it. Right. Filmmakers so often have a notion that they, you know, 30 seconds or less is fine, or with a song, six seconds or less is fine, and they come up with these, with these rules, which are totally inaccurate. Um, however, courts do look at how much they use. That is certainly one of the factors that courts look at, is how much of the underlying work do they use. 
And that, I think, goes part and parcel with another factor that's extremely important with fair use is will it how will it affect the market? So if you're going to displace that market, someone's going to watch your movie instead of the movie which you took a clip from, that's going to weigh heavily that it's not fair use. If it's not affecting that market, and in so many cases with documentaries, it's actually helping the market. You do a, a film on the history of, um, of Asian, Asian American movies or something, and you show all these clips from Asian American movies, more people are going to want to go and see those movies. So that weighs in favor of the fair use argument. But there's not a hard and fast rule, which again is one of these notions that people think there are. Let's take another position. Let's say I'm a filmmaker who's had my uh, content taken and put in someone's film, and this f other filmmaker is claiming, well, it's fair use. Yeah. Who is this a jury that determines how appropriate that clip was? Let's suppose it was something that I felt, hey, that was my work, and it's more than appropriate, or whatever the terminology you had used earlier that to determine or to, to make a point about something. Right. What what would I do in that case? Let's suppose my work's been taken, well, theoretically. The first thing you do is really understand what is and isn't fair use. Um, the book talks about three different ways of answering that question. The statutory way, the safe harbor way, which I just outlined to you, and then there's a uh, best practices booklet that also is relevant. These are different ways, and, and you want to really be sure that no matter how you come at the question, you land up with the answer, hey, this is not fair use. Um, th then you go get a good litigator, or you might just call first and see if you can work it out with a filmmaker, because so many, many filmmakers are willing to pay a reasonable license. Hmm. Uh, and, and you can tell pretty quickly if they consulted with a lawyer, if they really had good guidance, or if they used it hoping you wouldn't know, and when you call they say, oh, it's fair use. So that, yeah. you know, it's a... I mean, a good example <coughs> of that is, you know, music is, is, I think, an easy way to look at that. Music, if someone's using music as score for a creative purpose, regardless of how short it is, even if it's three seconds, we'll always opine that's not fair use because you're simply using it for the creative value of it and because you like that song. If you're using music because you're commenting on it and you're talking about a certain song by Elvis Presley that he's saying and, and you show a little bit of that, that's fair use. But once you start using that song as score underneath the next um, talking head who's in your documentary, that's no longer fair use because you're using it just for the creative purpose. So you, as, as a copyright holder who's had your stuff in, infringed upon or used under fair use, would want to look at that. Are they using it for the creative value of it, or are they using it because they're really commenting on my work? One of the chapters in your book, or one of the sections, I should say, of clearance and copyright, everything you need to know for film and television, is entitled, To Ask or Not to Ask? That is the question. <laughs> so uh, what would that entail? What is a filmmaker asking? Is they, are they asking a copyright holder for permission? Yeah, and I think this again is, is one of those a misconception people have, that if they do ask, they can't fair use something. 
or if they get a quote for something, it affects whether or not they can use something under the under the fair use doctrine. And it really doesn't. I think from a risk, risk perspective, which I'll explain in a little bit, it can. But from a legal perspective, if you're going to go out to the copyright holder and ask for a license fee, and or ask for how much it would cost to license something, and they come back and it's an exorbitant amount and you can't afford it, you still can fair use that material. It doesn't affect the fair use argument at all. What it does do, though, is it puts you on the radar for that license holder, and then they'll follow up with you and say, hey, are you going to license that from us? You know, we sent you that quote. And then you have to have sort of an awkward conversation of, no, we're actually using it under fair use now. And they say, no, it's not fair use. It's absolutely not fair use. You have to license it from us. And then they come to us and they say, well, what should we do? And so it kind of, it can create a little bit of an uncomfortable situation, which I think all it really is. It's not a legal factor. Um, and also can create a little bit more in legal fees because then you're all of a sudden paying us or someone else to negotiate with these guys. And sometimes in order to avoid a dispute or to, to keep a good relationship, you will license something, and maybe for a lesser fee, saying this really is fair use, but we're happy to license it from you, but we're not going to pay you what you asked. Um, and so you enter into that negotiation. So you know, to ask or not to ask is a question we get a lot. And typically, I'll say, you know, you shouldn't ask. And it's not because we're trying to hide anything, but it's because the person who's licensing the footage to you, or whatever it is, doesn't want to have that conversation. It's not in their best interest. And in order to elevate it up to the lawyers who would be making the decision on whether or not it's fair use, it's not really worth anybody's time. Do you know what I mean? So I usually say don't ask unless there is a reason to ask. You know, maybe there's a relationship there. Maybe you're you're delivering a film to Paramount and you want to use a film from use a clip from a film that also is owned by Paramount. Then you probably should ask and have that discussion. But um, typically, if it's just a run-of-the-mill, I want to use this news clip in my documentary and it's clearly fair use, I would not go and, and ask for a license if you know you're not going to license it. I also like to have insurance in place before you go asking. Right. Um, it just makes everything more comfortable. And if the price is very high, uh, we talk about, to the filmmakers, about different ways of sort of excusing oneself from the conversation for as long as possible without waving the fair use flag. Yeah. Uh, it's Because um, especially at the studios and the networks, the person that you talk to as a filmmaker has as his or her sole job licensing clips and their whole uh, compensation, their value to the company is how much money did you bring in licensing clips? So they just will, you know, the hairs on the back of their neck will stand up when you start talking about fair use. Well, let's say I'm a documentary filmmaker and I'm making uh, a film about, let's say, activism in the 60s and I want to use a clip from a folk singer and this folk singer is still alive, let's say. Would I just reach out to their personal website and send a nice email but already have this E&O insurance policy in place? Mm -hmm. And just play nice first. Yeah. Well, you may, but you also may not, because uh, you know my viewpoint, and maybe I'm being lazy about it. But it's like, who wants to have that conversation if you don't really have an intent to license? It's sort of a waste of everybody's time. In a sense, it could be considered kind of rude. Like, why are you calling me if you're not planning on licensing this for me? So unless you know, Michael's example is a perfect example where there was a negotiation there. They had already maybe even agreed on some terms. Then it's, it makes sense from a business standpoint 
to continue that discussion and to let them know. But to just reach out to the folk singer when you really have no intention of actually licensing it, I think is, is counterproductive. You know, it's just not, it's not necessary and it, it's kind of a waste of everybody's time. And in this case, since I already mentioned what the film was about, um, the, uh, one of the producers, they want to maintain a relationship. So it right. makes sense to call and have a courtesy call, say, you know, we've, we got turned down, we worked on the film to make sure everything came within fair use, they have insurance, but I certainly wanted you to know about it. And they, uh, they asked to see the film, it's, it's fine. Yeah. You know, and the opposite happens as well, where somebody does have an intention to license most or all of what's in their film. And then they try to license certain things and the license doesn't work out for some reason. You know, some say they won't license in perpetuity and they have to, and the producer is under an obligation to get all licenses in perpetuity. Um, so then you have the discussion, I'm dealing with this right now where I have a client who's wanted to license everything. Um, one entity has come back and said, we can't give you a license in perpetuity. We can give it to you for 30 years, but it was an exorbitant cost. It was something about three times what they were paying for other archival material that was similar. And so she said, how should I respond? I said, get back to them and say, you know, we can't license at that amount. We're happy to license it if you could meet our $100 a second rate that we're doing with everybody else. And if not, we're going to have to pass on the license. And so we're dealing with that now, but that was kind of the converse of what we were talking about before, where they really did intend to license everything, and then they're just running into hurdles. And if they can license it, great. If not, we're going to use it under fair use. Curious but, about... But it's oh. interesting. Mm -hmm. The way you phrase that, they say, we'll just have to pass on the license, as opposed to, we're going to use it anyway, right. screw you, <laughs> you know, it, it's yeah. all, there's all, play nice. a lot of, um, uh, and I think it's more than just plain nice. Yeah, good point. It's a consideration for two things. One is, they do own the copyright, make a lot of money, and two, very important, the person you're talking to at a studio has this very narrow job of maximizing income from licensing clips. And, and what you're basically doing is, is a threat to the job. Certainly if it was very widespread, this person would not be able to bring in as much money to the studio, therefore they wouldn't be making as much. You know, it's a really very, uh, I, I, and this goes for everything in life, every negotiation you ever have. You want to understand the other person's position. They're not being jerks. They just have this very narrow eight hour a day, five days a week job that they're doing. And they're not bad people. They just have very narrow limits, very narrow authority. They have a rate card. And their job is to get that rate on every clip that's used of any material from that studio. That's their job. Yeah. That was my next question was the tone of all the correspondence because so many people get excited when they see, oh, that's my whatever and, and you know, and, and as you said, playing nice. So the tone well, should always be non-accusatory uh, yeah. for most of the exchange, yeah. it sounds we're, like. We're not litigators. And very often, you know, a lawyer will call very bombastically and say, oh, you've got an upset client. I don't blame them for being upset. You know, I, you have to understand where they're coming from. And that makes it easy to solve the problem. Yeah, it does. And I also, you know, that's our, our philosophy and the way we work in this office is that we are collegial. And I think it makes our jobs 
a lot easier. We represent copyright holders. So we're not looking to screw anybody over or get something that's not ours or you know anything like that. And so when we get that angry call, we do understand. And it's not, you know, as I said before, playing nice. It's not playing. We really are nice because we <laughs> certainly understand. And um, and I think that's what makes it makes our job easier and makes it much easier to come to a resolution with people. Because we don't call them and say, screw you, it's fair use, and you know, sue us. We really, after we get that call, we respond collegially with an educated response of, we understand you're upset, but this is the law that we've based our opinion on. And oftentimes Michael likes to throw in a copy of the book and throw in the copy of the 150-page <laughs> article that he wrote. And say, you know, We didn't just willy-nilly say fair use on this. Like We really base this on, on education and a study of the law and a deep understanding of this area. Let's talk about E&O insurance. Uh, what is E&O insurance? When does a filmmaker need to begin the policy? And are there times when a filmmaker will not need E&O insurance? So E&O insurance is an insurance policy that filmmakers have to get when their film is going to be distributed in any way. Um, it stands for errors and omissions. And it covers things like copyright infringement, trademark infringement, personal rights violations, violations of rights of publicity, those things that you can't touch, but um, which every filmmaker is susceptible to if there is some sort of claim for copyright infringement or something of that nature. So that's what E&O insurance covers you for. As to when you get E&O, it really depends. I think Michael will say, get it early all the time. Would you say that? Well, as early as you can. As early as you can. Yeah. Um, I, I work on a lot of films that are maybe so small or just very discreet, not controversial at all, a feature film that really is just shooting in one or two locations where the risk of needing E&O is very low. And they can wait until a little bit later if they need to for budgetary reasons. If you're dealing with a film that's a little more controversial, something that's out in the open that um, is just dealing with a controversial topic or something of that nature, then you should get it a lot earlier. Um, especially if you're doing something without permission. So if you're doing a life story on somebody, be them alive or deceased, and you don't have the rights from that person, you very well m will want to get E&O early. Because what it will do is if that estate comes after you and says, hey, you don't have the right to do this, you gotta shut down production, you have your insurance in place and it gives you, the, one, the confidence, but two, um, a limit on your financial liability to say, yes, we are doing this. It's appropriate for us to do a life story right. We have a First Amendment right to tell the story. And by the way, we have an insurance company that's backing us up. And so it really depends on the project, how early you need to get it, but as early as possible, as Michael said, is always prudent. So even within the, the final draft of the script or maybe more when you're about to oh, well, start some, shooting? Some films we recommend getting E&O insurance before the script is even done. Yeah, I think Dominique Strauss-Kahn that you mentioned before, <laughs> that was done very early. I mean, that was high, very high risk. And so they wanted to have insurance in place early because if it leaked that the script was being written, someone could potentially try to stop it. Yeah, the, uh, on that one, uh, absolutely, at the at the script stage. Uh, in fact, that was a condition of one of the financial backers that the filmmaker had to show proof of insurance for you know smart smart financier in that case. Do you have a list of carriers in your book? Yes, we do. We do okay, we do. great. Yes, we actually have a list of brokers. Brokers, okay be nuanced about it. We have a list of brokers and they kind of go out to the same carriers that will issue the policy. We have a list of great brokers that are very proficient with independent film, documentary films, and fair use and make the process very easy. 
And so it would be similar to getting a car insurance quote in some sense. They would go through different things, That's find right. out. It's exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And what I like to tell, what the analogy I like to use is if somebody does approach you and says, you know, you can't do this without my permission, before you have your E&O in place, that's a pre-existing condition. So it says if somebody goes to get medical insurance and they have a heart condition, the carrier will say, sure, we'll cover you for everything but that heart condition. And it's the same thing for film. Sure, we'll cover you for everything but a claim from that person who's already come forward and presented a potential problem. And if the filmmaker were to conceal that there was a pre-existing problem, then that would be later on down the line if something did happen. Right. So no just coverage. like no, no coverage. coverage. Yeah, and same as medical insurance. You know, if you just if you don't disclose something on your application, it's fraud, and they won't uh, they won't be obligated to cover you. So when filmmakers sit down to negotiate uh, a distribution deal for their movie, um, what happens? Who initiates it? Who speaks first? Uh, what points are typically brought up? Um, it happens in a lot of different ways. You know, let's take a, a typical example. We just got back from Sundance. So we'll take a Sundance film that is lucky enough to get distribution. While they're there, there's interest from buyers. Typically what happens is there's a sales agent involved. And that sales agent will take the lead on the negotiations. And when we get involved is sort of at that same time, but in a little bit of a different role. So simply put, the sales agent will negotiate the material deal points. What rights am I getting? How much money are they going to pay me? How long is the term going to be? Um, and we will come in and make sure that, especially when we've been on since the beginning and we really understand the project, just to make sure that there's no rights that are being granted that conflict with something that the filmmaker has expressed to us before. You know, sometimes we're working on a music doc and they want to retain the soundtrack rights but the sales agent doesn't know that, and the sales agent gives away the soundtrack rights. And then it becomes a big issue later on, so it's good for us to be involved at that early stage so that we can make sure that the deal is, is appropriate for the client and makes sense. And then we also come in, again, when there's a longer form agreement to negotiate. We really start delving into, the, into issues like delivery. What do they need to deliver? You know, a, delivery, the, a delivery list that's attached to a distribution agreement can be quite onerous and quite expensive. And if the filmmaker isn't careful to go through that and understand exactly what they need to deliver, it could cost them tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to deliver a film, and maybe they're only getting an advance of $50,000. <laughs> it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So that's an important thing that we make sure that the filmmaker understands everything they have to deliver and going through that with them, and then, again, all of the terms in the contract. What would some of those items be that they would need to deliver on? Um, well, most of them, which are above my head, but technical items that they have to deliver. Do they need to deliver a 35-millimeter print? Do they have to, what kind of digital format do they need? How, much, how many publicity stills do they need to deliver? Um, do they need to deliver artwork? Do they need to make their own trailer? You know, there's all of those issues that sometimes a producer just assumes the studio is going to do that. And sometimes they're not going to. <laughs> so it really depends. In other circumstances, they may want to. The studio may say, we're doing this trailer. We're not trusting you to do the trailer. We're the marketing experts. Um, but other times, they want that stuff to be delivered. What are some of the typical terms in a distribution uh, agreement, whether it's theatrical or VOD? Um, so that depends. You know, I guess, well, like, I guess it doesn't really depend. In all distribution agreements, you're going to have the term. So how long are you giving them the rights for? And Really, you know, we look at that, it, it's very dependent on money. You know, if you're paying a lot of money for this acquisition, if you're paying $7 million for a film, the acquirer is going to get probably all the rights, and they're probably going to get it in perpetuity. If somebody's giving no advance, we might say, okay, we'll give you broadcast rights. Let's say you're CNN, and you're giving a $50,000 advance. Um, and this is totally just an example, not <laughs> true. Um, 
We're going to say, okay, Sienna, and you can have the broadcast rights, but I'm retaining everything else. I want the rights to go someplace else to distribute this digitally. I want the ability to monetize this elsewhere because you're not giving me enough money to recoup my expenses, pay back my investors, etc. You both have a chapter in the book, Copyright and Clearance, that reads, advertising that sells your film can also kill your film. Do tell. You take it. Well, the, um, <laughs> that's part of the fair use chapter. And the, uh, a lot of filmmakers think, oh, great, it's fair use. And then they send the film off to have a trailer made. And some of that material that was fair use in the film will show up in the trailer. That isn't necessarily true. The, the trailer has to be evaluated on its own to decide whether the material is fair use as it appears in the trailer. What was the, what was the one you worked on with Mark Ruffalo playing a sex addict? That was called Thank You for Sharing. Okay. Is that what it was called? Yeah. It was called Thank You. That was called Thank You for Sharing. Um, and in that film, it was a little different with fair use issue. It was it was a narrative film, and Mark Ruffalo was walking down the street. And as he's walking down the street, they capture um, purposefully images of Victoria's Secret models, images of you know a jeans ad with a very sexy woman on it, and all of these things. And they wanted to use those in the trailer. They appear in the film without permission because they captured them on the street. But um, in the trailer, we had to review that again to make sure that the use in the trailer was fair use. And we determined it was after many conversations and getting together and making sure we were all comfortable with it. Um, and because there was a comment on those, you know, it was an explanation of what the film is about, what this guy's addiction was, and how it gets fed by billboards and media all over the place. It's like, oh my God, how do you not think about sex when you're bombarded with these images? And so we determined that, that was okay and that was okay to use in the, in the, um, in the trailer. So not only does the actual film, all 90 minutes or whatever, uh, have to pass the fair use sort of litmus test, but then also the trailer is, is held up to a, yeah. almost a different standard, it sounds it is like. A, it is a different standard. And also, the mo we don't get a lot of calls or complaints in this office, but most of them come from trailers or teasers that people put up on their Kickstarter campaign that have not been cleared by us. It reaches more eyeballs. And so those trailers and the teasers, et cetera, that are online, more people see them, and there's just a higher risk that someone's going to view it and then be upset about the use. And so often it comes to our office, and they're like, oh, we got this, we got this letter, and then we find out it's from a trailer that we never even saw. And we're like, oh, we wish you would have shown that to us, you know, so that we could have at least rendered an opinion, made sure you had insurance in place, and then we're just in such a stronger bargaining position when that's the case. Let's say a screenwriter is working on a based on a true story uh, type screenplay and it's either based on a real person or a real historical event. So if this real person, let's say, is still living, um, does the screenwriter need release forms from this real person? I've never thought about that before. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Um, this is a question that we get asked all the time. and. Um, I guess the first the first answer to that is legally no. You do not need to get those rights. There are a whole host of good reasons to go out and get what we call life rights um, or even a release from that person. But legally we all have a right under the First Amendment to tell a truthful story. So if that story is truthful, which if you don't have the rights to that person we have to make extra special care to make sure that it is, um, you don't need any rights from that individual. And if you think about books, how many books there are, and probably every president of the United States 
the president doesn't necessarily authorize every single one of those books. He authorizes one that has the best picture of him on the front, <laughs> but the other ones are written because people have a First Amendment right to write those stories based on information that's in the public. Um, so the legal answer is no. And then, well, why get them? And there's a whole lot of good reasons. One is to reduce liability. You know, just because the law is on your side doesn't mean people won't get upset about something or think that they should have gotten their rights acquired. Um, so a liability issue, a delivery issue, you know, if you plan on delivering this to a big studio, they like to see those types of agreements in place, again, because of the risk. Um, and also, you might want to have access to that person. They might have journals and pictures and access to other people that you want to interview or conduct research with, and they can provide that access. So it's, there's a lot of good reasons to get life rights, but legally you don't need to. So let's suppose, though, I change the name and some of the characteristics. Would that make it safer for me, or again, still? <laughs> no, do the journalism. Do, do, a, uh, do the research and create an accurate portrayal. Uh, you're allowed some dramatic flexibility, but uh, and we, we have to work with a screenwriter on that. And I gave you, in another answer, the example of uh, Welcome to New York, where it was about Dominic Strauss-Kahn. There are two arguments between uh, Mr. and Mrs. Kahn that are totally made up. Nobody was there except them, and we, we weren't able to talk to them. But the scenes were reasonable inferences from everything we did know. So there's, a, there's some flexibility even on that. But the, uh, so often people think, oh, I'll change the name and that'll fix it. Uh, the issue is, is the film of or concerning a certain person? And very often, uh, I, 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 my, my favorite example is we had a, um, a film in about Michael Jackson's alleged proclivity for little boys, and the um, uh, it, the there was one uh, uh, chauffeur in in the film throughout the film, and uh, I said to the filmmaker. Is this man still alive? Oh no, uh, we we changed his name, and we and I said, but it's the same chauffeur. Oh yes, Michael Jackson always used the same chauffeur when he had boys in the car. And I said, so what good is it to change the name? Well, we we changed the ethnicity and we changed his name. Said, yeah, but there was only one driver. That's the guy. You could make him a Martian and it would be this man. So you have to be very careful about the notion of, oh, I'll make a few changes and it'll be okay. I don't know where that came from. Right. As long as the person is still recognizable, they're still <coughs> recognizable. So, you know, you, you see films all the time and they call a person, I don't know, Jack instead of John. They're like, wow, look at that. Now you'll never know it was really John. <laughs> and you, if, if a person does, then legally you can still be on the hook. Suppose I live with my college roommate, we have a script idea, and we are both writing it, and we've completed this amazing 100-page script. We're going to shop it around. We're friends, so there's nothing to worry about, right? That's, it's... Err. No? Okay. <laughs> Wrong again. Wrong again. And this is so common. We, I, I hate to say it, but once or twice a year, every year, 
the problem comes in because it doesn't, it doesn't happen until one of two things. Either you can't sell it, so one wants to change it dramatically, the other one doesn't, or you get an offer, one wants to take it, one doesn't. It's that point in time, and then you don't have an agreement. What do we do? Who gets to decide? It's a mess. There are, there's an easy collaboration agreement with comments, and the way the book is set up, there's an uh, email address where you just type it in and you'll get a clean copy, Word, Word version, downloadable, that you can change and use, and then you just follow the book along with how to use it, because this, this book, when it talks about contracts, has a lot of instructional boxes that tell you how to use the contracts that are in the book. At what point am I doing this? Early? Very, very, very When you guys are early. still friends and yes. living together <laughs> and loving each other and yeah. loving the script. Um, you know, yeah. we see it all the time and if people have interesting memories, bad memories, different memories of what the agreement was. Who created the storyline? Who was the first person to come up with this idea? And we, come th we have so many outlandish things that come in the office. I had a guy who came in here one time and he insisted that he created the storyline and wasn't the writer. He worked with a friend who actually had the experience in writing, but he basically created the entire story. And the other guy came in and said, absolutely not. This was totally my thing. He came up with a little bit of an idea. I expanded it. I wrote the script. He gave me a few notes that weren't even helpful. I mean, the stories were night and day. And so had they initially, and they ended up actually just scrapping the project. It was essentially, they just burnt the script. They said, forget it. We're not gonna move forward with each other. Um, and there's, there's no way we're gonna reconcile this. And had they just at the beginning put together something simple, something, a simple collaboration agreement or something simple even by email saying, you know, I came up with this, you came up with this, we're gonna work together, we're gonna be owners on this 50-50. Um, since I have the experience more as a producer, I'm gonna shop this and I'll come to you with any sort of deals and we'll make sure that we're both okay with it. You know, something very simple just that outlines what will happen in success and what will happen if one of us wants to move on. What if somebody gets a full-time job and they can't work on the script anymore? Um, so just to lay out those contingencies, even in a simple way, is so important. Um, and from another practical perspective, if the film does get sold or somebody's interested in it, they don't want to deal with the drama between the two writers. They want that resolved. Who's, yeah. who's whose name is first? You know, <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. They want it settled, otherwise they move on to the next project because there are a lot of scripts out there. So even a simple email exchange in the initial beginning of forming the story idea would have been satisfactory? Yeah, or helpful. helpful. You know, how it, sometimes it might have been completely conclusive, like this is the deal. In other circumstances, you might say, well, there's seven other email strings, and look what we said over here. You know, so there certainly could be that, but it's always helpful to have at least something in writing. How A does lot of people avoid it because they want to uh, avoid some sort of conflict, and when people say that to me, I say, oh my gosh. <laughs> you're going to avoid a conflict now to cruise, but you're going to face it someday. So you, you don't want to put all the, pro the time and effort into writing a script and then not know what you're going to do with it. Decide that now. Yeah. Decide it when you can say, oh, okay, that's the way you want to, okay, I guess I don't want to write a script with you. Because that's a big commitment. Sure. People are making these commitments all the time without 
an understanding of how's it going to play out because not every script gets immediately sold for a million bucks and made into a film that wins an Academy Award. Mm -hmm. There are actually scripts written that that doesn't happen to. You learn a new thing every day. Yes. <laughs> How does one have the talk then with with a friend, roommate, whatever, was, collaborator? Was the question, how does one have the talk? Yeah, or? how do you do it in a non-threatening way that's not like, oh, hey, my lawyer asked me to send this to you. And so, How does someone do it in a, in a very sort of easygoing way, eventually bringing out some type of contract, right. but well, that's non-threatening? I think non the first words out of your mouth is, before we actually start writing, Okay. Comma. Comma. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Okay. Maybe we should talk about the business side of our relationship. Period. Next sentence. <laughs> like, whose name will go first on the script? Or as, as one, that's one issue that should be solved. Uh, are we going to be 50-50 owners? Just putting the questions there. Yeah, and it, it is. Un I do understand it is uncomfortable, especially when you're working with friends to talk about those things. But it's so important, and you can even say, "I just read this book, Clarence and Copyright, and it suggested that we have this conversation <laughs> now." Um, yeah. You know, and, and I think it, it can be do. I think it can be done in a way because it's beneficial for both parties. You know, you're not saying, "Let's have this conversation because I'm trying to protect my interests." It's like, "Let's have this conversation because." In the event we're lucky enough for someone to want to buy this, we need to have all these things worked out. So let's just work it out now, you know? So if someone's response to that, which I've, I've heard this, oh, I'm totally cool, I'm so easygoing, don't even worry about totally. it. <laughs> but, yeah. dot, 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 then you would interject with, that sounds great, so am I, but let's just get this right and right. Yeah. Okay, that's right. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's just having that conversation that can be a little bit difficult but one that will be so much more difficult and can potentially ruin your project down the road if you wait. Yeah. And you know, if it turns out that the two of you have a very different idea, like, oh yeah, we'll write it together, we'll own it 50-50, but I get to make all the decisions about how it's exploited. Oh, can we talk about that? No, that's an that's a, absolutely. Okay maybe I don't want to write this script with yeah. you. And, and then your, your plate, your life is open for some other project that where the working relationship is better. Yeah. And that is a good point. If you can't have that conversation with the person you're writing a script with, maybe you shouldn't be writing that script with that person.